Thank you, Tom. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Matthew in chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can always take your phone out and Google Matthew 26, and it'll take you right there. Um, big thank you to those of you that have filled in the pulpit these last many weeks, David Parker, Justin Boswell, Peter Crowder, and uh, we have all been blessed, amen, by their ministry towards us. All right, well, Matthew 28. We begin this time, really, with an examination of the cross. That's what the last three chapters of Matthew are really going to focus on. Uh, the cross, very brutal means of execution in the days of uh, Roman times. And um, it's kind of interesting to me how many people wear a cross as jewelry, as a necklace, earrings, maybe it's a bumper sticker on a car, something on the wall of their home or on their door. And I've always wondered, why is that? Have you ever asked that question? Why is that such a big deal? I mean, it's a means of execution. Why don't we put a syringe on the bumper sticker for uh, death penalty and um, lethal injection? Uh, why don't we hang an electric chair on our necklaces? Well, there's a reason. It isn't merely that we're remembering a form of execution. We are, in essence, remembering the very symbol that is the core behind the essence of what it is that we believe. An execution by the cross was usually done at a, pun intended, crossroads, a place where people would often travel and go by. They were meant to stop. They were meant to see what was going on. And so it's kind of interesting. Today, where we believe Calvary is, uh, is actually a bus station in Israel in this time. But it's still a crossroads, a place where people will travel and go through and see what's occurring here. But the death of the cross, it was very much meant to be visible. You were meant to see it and to take note, to force travelers to look and to pay attention. And I personally believe that the cross is still that kind of a place. It is a crossroads. It is a place where all humanity is meant to come to and they're meant to stop. They're meant to look and to ask themselves, why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would God want Jesus to go through something like this? Why would God require it of him? What's the point behind it? And finally, the, the cross makes us ask, what am I supposed to do with that? What is meant for me in looking and examining the cross, and why should I consider it? For the next five weeks, we're going to look further and further in each chapter of these last few of Matthew to answer that question and to see what I'm calling Jesus on full display before us, because that's what would happen on a cross. He would be on full display in front of everybody. But I think that it shows us a full display of the very heart of God himself. And we'll be looking at that in these next few weeks. Today, we do things just a little bit different. Today, I'm going to focus primarily on three people. Three people that we find in the Gospels. And we're going to go through their minds as they are at a crossroads and a determination of what will I do with Jesus? Who is he to me? What, 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 should, I, what should be my response based on that? Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you something to think about as we look at the passage. And at this point, what you value in this life can greatly shape what you're going to believe about Jesus. What you value in this life is going to be to a large extent, what's going to shape what you believe about Jesus Christ. Three people are going to demonstrate this for us. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd ask you, if you would, to please stand out of respect for the Word of God as we read Matthew 26, looking at the first 16 verses. 
says, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me, for you always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Father, your words contain life for us, and it is your words that transform hearts. We pray and ask that you would work in each of our hearts today through the power of your spirit with the tool of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, Jesus begins by telling his disciples, or maybe I should say retelling his disciples of what the plan is that he is ultimately gonna be delivered over and be crucified in just two days from when he made this statement. And spearheading the effort to bring him to death is a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was, we will call him the corrupt high priest of his day over the, over the people of Israel. They were then um, the community of the Jews. And he, along with the Jewish leaders, had decided they had to get rid of Jesus. Why? What was it about Jesus that made them so hostile towards him? Well, we have the other gospel accounts that sort of fill in, uh, color inside the lines for us on that. And so combining Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get a fuller picture of the things that motivated them. And I'm gonna summarize it this way. What ultimately we discover is that Jesus was a threat to the things that the leaders valued. He was a threat to them. Why was he a threat? Because he revealed their hypocrisy. They displayed through this, their twisted interpretations of the law a heart that wasn't in, in alignment with God. Their hearts were in alignment with what do they want to do, and they want to baptize God's word as a means of doing this. And we've, we've experienced this kind of thing before, haven't we? People that will heed the letter of the law while violating its very spirit. I was told the story of a fellow who went to a pond, and on the side was a big sign that said, No fishing. And yet here this guy was with a boat and it was loaded with fish. And the game warden came up and looked at him, pointed to the sign, no fishing, pointed to his boat where the fish were and said, uh, excuse me, sir, did you not read the sign? And the man said, no worries at all. Reached in his boat, pulled up a shotgun and said, I'm not fishing, I'm hunting. And so that's an individual who's gonna take the letter of the law and violate it um, or comply with it while at the same time violating the very spirit behind the law. That's what these guys were doing repeatedly with God's word. And Jesus called them out on it. 
and highlighted, this isn't a righteousness that God observes. This isn't a righteousness that God exalts. And so as a result, these guys are frustrated. I mean, they worked hard to build a reputation so that people would look up to them, to see them as a, a holy kind of people. They had prayers that they would go out on the streets and utter and mutter in front of folks, figuring people would say, man, I wish I could pray like this guy. And yet Jesus highlighted there's no heart behind the prayer. It's just words and a speech. These are guys who sought prestige and they sought power, which rank and money always seem to kind of present, don't they? And they were motivated by personal gain. In fact, Luke chapter 16 tells that they were lovers of money. Now note this, God never says having money is a problem. Loving money is always a problem because it's loving money that now makes money an, um, an idol that is higher than God himself. That God won't tolerate. And that's exactly where these individuals were. But at the end of the day, these guys were just, they were frauds. They put on a religious show. But when you got to know them, Behind the scenes, they were not the same people. So Jesus was a threat to them because he showed them and others what it was that they really valued, and they hated him for it. Now, before we look down in our noses at them for too long and elevate ourselves, let's be honest with ourselves. Every single one of us is tempted in the same way. And every single one of us has done this as well, haven't we? All of us. Why is this? Why does this tempt us? Because I think all too often it's these horizontal motivators in life that are the things that are tangible to us. We can see it, we can taste it, we can feel it, we can control it. These horizontal motivators like elevating our pride, making a name for ourselves, finding worth in the things maybe that we own or in the degrees that we have, of loving and trying to find our identity in something where people will look at us and look up to us and consider us maybe as worthy. And this is what's common amongst us all. It's that temptation to allow the horizontal motivators to be what determines what we'll live for. These guys hated Jesus because he revealed the vertical motivator of between them and God, that vertical motivator was absent. It wasn't there. And when he challenged them, Challenge them to consider their failure, to consider the holiness of God. Challenge them to not take God's word for selfish purposes, but to take it for the means of promoting who God is and informing others as to who God is. They just showed they really had no love for God, and Jesus exposed them. And so Caiaphas and his leaders, they didn't want this. They didn't like being exposed just like nobody likes to be exposed, because it meant something. It meant they would have to repent. They would have to turn from going down this way and change, and they didn't want to. So rather than repent, they wanted to silence the voice that convicted them. And this is not new. If you go back in your Old Testament, uh, Genesis chapter 4, two brothers, Cain and Abel. You remember, Abel comes, he brings his sacrifice to God. And God receives that. Cain doesn't bring a sacrifice. He brings the fruit of his labors, his, his works. And he brings that before God and God doesn't receive it. Cain is upset over that. When God confronts him on that, you remember what he says? He basically says, listen, you can't let sin crouch at your door and take over. You need to start making some changes. And ultimately, Cain made the decision, I'm not going to repent. This guy convicts me, though, because his, world, his walk is true. I'll kill him. 
And there's nothing new under the sun, people. That's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. That's what Caiaphas's heart, where it was taking him. So Caiaphas, threatened by Jesus. That's the first person. Then Matthew takes us and he has us leave Jerusalem and we go two miles to the east. Go to a little town called Bethany. And if Jerusalem was the city of hate, Bethany, I think, is going to be the city of love. And here we enter into a home of a man called Simon the leper. Now, even though his title is the leper, we have to infer by what we know of Scripture that he obviously didn't still have leprosy. Otherwise, nobody could go to his house. Uh, for those of you that are going to be uh, reading the Bible through with us this year, this week you're going to be reading in Leviticus about the whole idea of leprosy. And you can see a clear picture behind it, that it's a picture of sin. It cuts you out off from the tabernacle. You can't be in the presence of God. And it cuts you off from the community of people. You can't be in the presence of others. But evidently, Jesus has intervened in this man's life. We have every reason to believe, because everyone's coming to his house, Jesus has healed him. And so he who once lived in an uncleanness and a separation, God has restored. He's a great picture of what it is God wants to do with every single one of us who are sinners. But it's in that setting that this really tender moment happens. This woman, and her name isn't given here. Other gospels give her name. Matthew wants her anonymous. This woman comes in, and she has a gift. She's got this vial of perfume. Now, if you want to express to someone how much you value them, how do you do that? There's a few ways, right? One is spend money on them. The more money you spend on them, the more you're revealing to them how much you appreciate them. You can also be creative. And the creative energies that you bring in can also reveal that. A great example in my own life, when I got engaged to my wife, I went out and I bought a ring. And that ring cost me a lot of money. Six months wages is how much I had to accrue to pay for that ring because I wanted her to know this is how special you are to me. I didn't bring creativity into it because she said, that's the ring I want, Jack, if you're ever thinking about that. <laughs> My other way I showed love was I listened. I was wise. This woman, she didn't spend a half year's salary. She spent a whole year. Gospel of John tells us it's 300 denarii. And it was a spice called spikenard. It's imported from the country of India. So you see it traveled a long way to get to where it was in that day. And it was often used for anointing the dead. And she takes it and she pours it all out on Jesus in a moment. In a moment with nothing left to show for it afterwards. No gain. It was extravagant. It was impractical. It was inefficient. And it really bothered a lot of people there. So much so Jesus had to step in on her behalf and say, why do you bother her? And this woman at her own crossroads has made a determination about Jesus also. I've wondered, did she know Jesus was gonna die soon? I mean, the text tells us that Jesus told his disciples, did she overhear that and know it or, or, or not? I, I don't know, maybe she did. But I do know this, that in that day, burial often was in a cave. It's not like we do dig a hole in the ground and, and place a person there. You send them into a cave. 
And you typically would wrap them in some sort of wrapping, sometimes with spices. And, and you would put spices all around for the express purpose of knowing that as this body began to decay, it was going to give off the stench of death. You put the spices around to overpower that. So you don't, others going by don't smell that and don't have to put up with it. And here, this woman's very costly act of worship, Jesus says, was preparation for his body. Now, some of you struggle with this, too, when you read about the poor, right? Jesus acknowledged the poor. His comment does not disregard them either. Look at how often Jesus invested in the poor and, and did things with them and for them. But here, the focus is on the costly act of worship that this woman would give. And Jesus was looking for a heart of lavish worship because it showed what the woman valued. She valued him. That's what she valued. Jesus was what she valued. I can't say with confidence that she knew for a fact that he was going to be her sacrifice, but I can say this, based on her act here and giving up the most valuable possession that she could have possibly had on her, we get exposed to the vertical motivator of her life. That is what was exposed. She knew there is no other options when it comes to my life. Nothing else I can turn to. Nothing would be of greater value. It, re it reminds me of a hymn that we used to sing. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. For this woman, possessions, they didn't satisfy. They weren't going to make it. Relationships that's not what fulfilled her. An identity and what people would think of her, that's not there. In fact, by worshiping, she took on the, the, the scorn of the people that were around her. It's only when God has stripped away everything else of value in our lives that we can ever realize we have no other options in this life. Only when he stripped it away. Well, this act of what appeared to have been great waste seems to have bothered one of the disciples in particular. And that disciple was Judas Iscariot. And he's our third person. And he's the foil in the story to the woman. We know in the other gospel books that it was Judas who was responsible for keeping the money for the disciples. We also know from the other gospels that he used to pilfer from it to take care of his own needs as a result. And it's after what it seems like this woman's really extravagant waste he then heads out to the religious authorities and he says, okay, guys, you want Jesus and you want him in a quiet moment when nobody else is around? I'm on the inside. I'll be that guy to deliver him over to you. And he purposed to betray Jesus. So for this one, rather than be to surrender to Jesus, he would instead surrender Jesus unto his death. And if the woman showed what she thought of Jesus by the value of what she was willing to expend on his behalf, Judas showed what he thought of Jesus by the low value of what he would sell Jesus out for. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Why'd he do it? I have heard so many sermons in my life uh, that state the reason, but the Bible doesn't really tell us, not explicitly. We're just left to sort of infer maybe what motivated him. And maybe he just felt like Jesus wasn't really being the king that he thought he should be. 
um, the wealth and the possessions and the rank maybe that he expected when he saw this expended on Jesus and wasted in that manner, maybe he thought, this is not going like I thought it was going to go. Jesus is not assuming the throne in the way that I thought he would and should assume the throne. And clearly, he's having second thoughts about who Jesus is. You know, I've, I've wondered, did Judas think he was a fraud? In that moment, when that perfume is being poured on Jesus, did he look at Jesus and go, you're, you're accepting worship in a way that I don't think you should be receiving it. Maybe he thought Jesus was a fraud and a scoundrel. We don't know. But we do know this. He didn't think Jesus was innocent. Because later on, when he has a change of heart, that will be his exclamation and his realization. But here, he doesn't think Jesus was innocent. And I think for him, Jesus was a disappointment to what he valued. What did he value? I think it was his paradigm. His paradigm of what he thought Jesus should be. And Jesus wasn't lining up with that. So he would work to betray Jesus to the men who would destroy him. And so it's here... I stop and I turn to you. And I'm going to invite you to take this moment to then enter into the story. And let me ask you this question How do you view Jesus? What's he to you? Is he a threat? A threat to what you value? When you think of Jesus, is your concern of the things you're going to have to give up and the things that you're going to have to start to surrender? Let me just say, that's a very valid concern. <laughs> it is. Because Jesus does make the statement that he has to be supreme in your life. Sovereign over everything. And if you want to follow him, his call is for you to die. To die to yourself. To your sin. Die to your value system. Die to your safety. Die to your control. His call is unconditional surrender. And that's threatening to a lot of people. Y'all ever seen those trust falls that people do? Someone will stand on something like this stage right here and people will line up uh, below them and they'll hold their arms out. And the idea is with your back to them, you're just gonna go like this and you're gonna fall backwards. And as you do so, these people are gonna catch you. And it's your, it's your hope that they will. And you won't fall unless you do believe that they are going to catch you. I think in many ways, that's what surrender to Jesus is like. That there is a fall, but it's a trust based on a person that you believe you're going to hold me. You'll sustain me. He's not a tyrant. He's not someone who's ultimately going to drop you. He's a loving God that wants you to flourish. But he doesn't want you to flourish in your sin and in your idolatry and the things that you will hold on to because he knows you can't flourish with those. It's impossible. Jesus knows our idols. He knows our demand that we be in control, that we place our hope in these various things that we encounter throughout our life, evidenced by the fact whenever we're willing to disobey God in one area so that we can accomplish what we want to accomplish in another. That's always a view that in that moment, that thing has become your idol. But it's here, here at the cross that you realize that in his death for us, we too have to die to ourselves and trust him. And for others of you, maybe this is what Jesus is. He's a disappointment or you're concerned that he'll be a disappointment to what you value, that he might not fit your paradigm of what you want to see 
from a religious figure. That he might not let you operate within the algorithmic formulas that we like to operate in of prediction and control. And for some of you, maybe you look back in your past, maybe he didn't prevent something bad from happening to you. And you feel like you should have been protected back then. Or he didn't allow something good to happen to you that you feel like that should have happened. Where were you in all this, God? And as a result, you're just not sure if you can trust him because of the past. And his values might not fit entirely within your paradigm. They might be different from yours. To you, let me just say this. I would, I would want to give you a challenge, something to think about. Come back the next few weeks. And as you do so, there's going to be a discovery you'll make. You'll find that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit blew away and acted outside of everybody's paradigm when he operated through the vehicle of the cross. Nobody saw it coming, and God didn't consult anybody about it. He didn't get anyone's permission. He is sovereign, and he is God. But when you see that paradigm getting busted, one of the things that you'll discover is God worked with a wisdom and a plan by which he could take these infinite absolutes that are impossible to align, and in a way only God could do, he could have them align and work together ultimately to make a way for an unholy creature to be in the presence of a perfectly holy God. And it was a paradigm bust that he did to accomplish that. And my prayer for you is that you find a paradigm bigger than you can imagine as we continue to look through these events and this story. But my prayer is also for all of us, but right now I'm just talking to you. My prayer for you is that you discover the truth, that you have nothing else that will ultimately fill and satisfy your soul. You will not find it to discover that only Jesus can be your hope, just like this woman did. Only Jesus can do that. That what you really ultimately need is to know I've been accepted by God, that I can actually enter into the presence of God and have peace. We can be united, we can be one, we can be connected. And I find a purpose to know that he can defeat sin, that he can defeat death, and that he can put me on a trajectory that not only affects my life now, but for the rest of my life and on into eternity. And that I'll have hope in and through it, that you will have that kind of hope. All because you came to the cross to find Jesus on full display. Jesus, the loving infinite, holy, pure one who could take away your sins, your isolation, give you new life. And like the woman, find he is what you value. That's my prayer for you. I'll end with this. 1831, there was a medieval checkerboard that had been found, or chessboard rather, and it had these various pieces that had been made out of what's called walrus ivory. It was found on the Isle of Lewis. But in the discovery of this game and these game pieces, they found five pieces were missing from it. Well, 200 years later, uh, there was another piece that was added. And there was a family in Edinburgh who brought it to Sotheby's, which is the, the dealer, broker in fine arts. And they presented it to say, we've got this little thing in our house. You know, what do you make of that? This is only three years ago when this piece surfaced. And it turns out that there was a grandfather in this family who bought this little piece 55 years ago, and he paid $6 for it. 
And uh, when the people at Sotheby's saw this, they instantly recognized it and knew this is of tremendous value. Its value, $1.2 million. I think for a lot of people, Jesus is like that piece. Someone you've heard about, you've seen, uh, maybe you've been exposed to, and he looked kind of plain. At times, a little rugged. But the Bible shows us he is the missing piece of your life if you don't have him. And he is of infinite value. There's a man named Henry Scogel, 1677, wrote this, that the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Ladies and gentlemen, God's love for you is infinite. It is so great, he would send his own son to die on your behalf to show you that love and to call you unto himself that you might love him back. And my call to you, receive him. Find that he is, in fact, worthy. Worthy of your very life. Worthy of your existence. Worthy of your all.